This morning's scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9, going to verse 7 of chapter 2. This is God's word. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Please be seated. Well, good morning and happy Easter. Whenever I uh, stand on uh, Easter Sunday morning like this, behind all these flowers, I am grateful that I don't have allergies. (laughs) There's quite a whiff of new life all around me, as there should be. On Easter Sunday, of course, Christians celebrate the central point of their faith, that is, Jesus is risen. I suspect I don't have to remind you of the basic idea that is celebrated today, though 
Sometimes I wonder. It was in 2007 that the Times of London recorded in disappointment that people these days did not realize that Easter eggs celebrated the birth of Jesus. And they didn't realize that they were wrong twice over. In fact, when it was called to their attention, so unsure were they that they had to write a special letter to the central office of the Church of England to confirm, yes, indeed, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Now, those of you who were here on Friday will know that we've been considering this weekend branding. We're all familiar with this idea. iPhones have a brand. Nike has a brand. And on Friday, we were considering that strangely, Jesus and the brand that is associated with him is a brand of brutal suffering and total failure. In fact, it is not a brand at all. It is the power of God. And yet, Good Friday is not the end of the message of the cross. And so actually on Easter Sunday, we understand that that was not the final word about Jesus. He rose again. And so now when we preach the cross, we preach, if you understand what I mean, an empty cross. Jesus is not on the cross. We preach an empty tomb. Jesus is not in the tomb. I've been reflecting on this a lot in uh, the last few weeks in preparation for this message this morning, and I've been asking myself whether that emphasis that was surely the apostolic emphasis when you read through the book of Acts, whether that emphasis is truly the central point of my preaching. When we preach today, do we preach the cross in the sense of a crucifix and death and failure Or do we preach in the sense of the risen king who is alive and rules and reigns? I'm not the first preacher to ask myself whether indeed our preaching these days is genuinely reflecting the apostolic emphasis. Long ago, Charles Spurgeon asked himself the same question. This is what he said he discovered. I was surprised to find that I had not been copying the apostolic fashion as clearly as I might have done. The apostles, when they preached, always testified concerning the resurrection of Jesus and the consequent resurrection of the dead. In fact, uh, one person did a survey of his published sermons, Charles Spurgeon's published sermons, and found out that in those published sermons, Spurgeon mentioned the resurrection of Jesus a total of 7,620 times, or roughly speaking, twice every single sermon. This is why Christians meet on Sunday. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. We are people of the cross, but we are also people of the empty tomb, right? And that changes everything, doesn't it? Absolutely everything. This is why I think I've been drawn to preach to you from the book of Revelation this morning. And 
Don't worry, I'm not going to get into all the details and complexities of that book. And if you're disappointed that I'm not going to do that kind of hermeneutical analysis, just look at the young family next to you and the warm smile on the mother's face as she looks at her children to find that out. The passage that we've just had read out is really um, split simply into two parts. The first is the shining brilliance of the truth of Jesus that is the vision that is given to the Apostle John on that island of Patmos where he was exiled for the testimony that he made to Jesus. The shining brilliance of Jesus, that true vision of who Jesus is as the risen king. And the second part is the consequent response of the church and of Christians and of all people, which is a first love for Jesus. Let's look then first at the uh, shining brilliance of, uh, of Jesus. Runs from verses 9 to 20. Who is this Jesus and then who are we to be? You'll see the, the way that uh, this vision of Jesus hit John in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Why? Well, this is what he saw. He saw Jesus in the midst of the lampstands. The lampstands being symbolic of the churches. In other words, Jesus is alive, is risen. The lampstands being the churches, and therefore Jesus, he saw, is actually here. He's not in some distant universe that we cannot commune with or connect with, but no, we can know him personally by faith. He is here by his Spirit. That that alone is enough to knock you off your feet. Then he saw, uh, verse 13, uh, one like a son of man, referring to the great sort of divine human figure, this God-man that was prophesied in Daniel. Fulfills all the Old Testament promises. And then again, verse 13, he has a a long robe and a golden sash that he was a king with all the authority that comes of that. It's an image from Daniel 7. His uh, hair was white. His head was white. White as wool, as snow. In other words, pure white, emphasizing the purity of this ancient of days that is Jesus again from Daniel 7. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze. That is, he was and is, not just was, he is, this all-powerful, conquering king, steadfast and strong. And then uh, verse 15 again, his voice like the roar of many waters. In other words, hearing him speak was like we're listening to the Niagara Falls in its full volume. Power in his word. And to emphasize the importance of this voice of Jesus, then we're told out of his mouth came a two-edged sword, an image from Isaiah that is picked up in the New Testament, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's two-edged like an ancient weapon, but the sword of the Spirit, that is, it's able to cut through the hardest material right to the central point of our hearts, revealing our needs, our desires, our sins, showing that really in Jesus, that is the only focal point for meaning and purpose. And then his face, what a face, 
Verse 16, his face shining like the sun in its brilliance. Well, no wonder he was uh, knocked, to, knocked, knocked down. Fell at his feet as if dead. This is the power of Jesus. Look, my friends, Jesus is not a cuss word. Jesus is not an adjective. You know how the word name of Jesus is used as an adjective these days? Jesus freak, someone who's too passionate about God. Jesus kitsch, paraphernalia you can find on Amazon that is somehow associated with a churchy context. Jesus is only ever a noun. He is the noun, the name. When I saw him, I felt his feet as though dead. Jesus is not our co-pilot. He does not come into our lives when we in our own sovereign power decide to give him permission. This is Jesus, the one with the royal robes and the golden sash, whose face shines with the sun in all its brilliance. How much we need to get a grasp of this reality today. One social commentator in the American scene says that American Christianity is moralistic, therapeutic deism, which is a fancy way of saying we today tend to associate the Christian movement, the Christian church in America with feeling good, doing good, but not much with actually knowing God. We keep them at a distance. We celebrate what happened in in the past, but this revelation, this vision that is given to the Apostle John shows that Jesus is actually here in all his power. He is the first and last, the living one who died, and behold, he lives forevermore. He has the power over life and death. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. My dear friends, I could spend the next 10, 15, 20 minutes trying to describe for you Jesus in the most winsome way, in the most evocative way I could consider, but nothing will encapsulate the person of Jesus in the way that the word, the vision given to the Apostle John does. I want you in your mind to see that. That is who we mean by Jesus. Yes, the brand of the cross is death and failure, but he is risen. One of the most famous brands that we have in uh, our area is the brand of the Cubs. The Cubs, of course, were known for many years for failure. 108 years. And when they gave out their... um, championship rings a week or so ago, whatever it was, they had embedded into those rings 108 stones for those 108 years before they won again. And when you see the cross, I want you to think not just of death and failure, but the risen Jesus, the empty tomb. He is alive. I say, well, what difference is that going to make? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. And that's the second part of the passage. Just introducing for us one of these seven churches that uh, John is asked to write to, the church at Ephesus. It had a particular problem. It was uh, zealous and hardworking. It was the kind of church that did the right things, believed the right things, the kind of church that always had lots of volunteers for all of its programs. 
It kept on going, it persevered, it was patient, it was an upstanding church. Wouldn't it be wonderful if someone would describe Cottage Church like that? They have perseverance, they have patience, they work hard, they don't give up, they never quit. And yet there was something that they were lacking. It was, uh, verse 4, their first love. When you see the truth, the brilliance of Jesus, you, I trust, by God's Spirit, will, as it were, be knocked off your feet and fall in love again. The first love is the love for Jesus at first. When you fall in love, there are various things that happen. You know the way it works. You must have seen people or remember in your own life when you were first in love. There's a couple who come into church and uh, they're newly loved. They're in the um, crazy phase of romance. We all notice. Everyone can tell. They sit next to each other. And if their love is still a little bit secret, they furtively hold hands and catch glimpses out of the corner of their eye. But their love is so obvious it cannot be hidden. In fact, as Warren Wiersbe once said, when you're in love, you cannot get one piece of paper between the two of you. They are the best evangelists for their love ever created. And when we as a church, and this has been my prayer for this weekend, that it will be a moment of renewal for us as a church. When we as a church renew our first love, we will not be able to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. This actually is the heritage of College Church. Back in the records of uh, the church I found, uh, the council records of the leadership being kept for many, many decades. And back in 1937, the record is taken to one of the leaders of that council that year, who it is recorded personally led to faith in Jesus 80 people that one year. Extraordinary man with an extraordinary gift for evangelism. What is more extraordinary was the simple kind of crazy first love enthusiasm that the record shows. One of the people he led to Jesus was at a gas station. Another person was in his own living room. You get the sense that you couldn't escape from this person sharing Jesus with you. First love leads to radical witness. Do I have that? Do you have that? Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, I don't need that. It was the great evangelist uh, Billy Sunday who had the habit when he went to cities to preach the gospel, he would send a letter to the mayor of that city asking the mayor to send to Billy Sunday a list of the names of the people in the city who were in a special need of special prayer. 
This was his habit, and he did it as he went round the country to each of the mayors of each of the cities. He sent the same letter to the mayor of uh, Columbus, Ohio. That time, the mayor sent him back a rather different list, having been asked to list all the people in Columbus, Ohio, who were in special need of special prayer. The mayor of Columbus sent back to Billy Sunday the entire phone book. You're telling me that you don't fear what's going to happen to you after you die? Really? You're telling me you're not longing for purpose and meaning in your life? You're telling me that you have a purpose and a grasp of your destiny that is unshakable? You're telling me that you're not longing that what I'm saying to be true actually is true? I think you want it to be true. There are many reasons to believe that it is true. One of the greatest um, scholars of the resurrection says there are 12 separate facts which are accepted by all historians concerning the resurrection. Number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. Number two, he was buried. Number three, it caused uh, his uh, disciples to despair. Number four, Jesus' tomb was discovered empty a few days later. Number five, his disciples had experiences which they believe were literal appearances of Jesus. Number six, the disciples were transformed from doubters to bold proclaimers. Number seven, the resurrection was the center of their preaching. Number eight, This was especially proclaimed in Jerusalem, which had just uh, a few days before seen Jesus alive. Number nine, the church was born and grew. Number ten, Sunday became the primary day of worship, the Resurrection Sunday. Number eleven, Thomas, a skeptic, was uh, converted when he also believed he saw the resurrected Jesus. And a few years later, Paul was converted by the appearance of Jesus. These are... One scholar of the resurrection says 12 indisputed facts. Perhaps you say it's just a myth. I know there are all these resurrection myths in ancient culture. Well, that's really not the case. Actually, those myths came subsequent to the bold proclamation of the resurrection. Beforehand, no one believed in the resurrection in that sense. The Jews were expecting the resurrection on the final day. They were not expecting the Messiah to die and rise again. That's why they crucified him and were surprised when he did rise again. An ancient Greek culture had an expectation of the soul but not bodily resurrection. No one was preaching this. The myths came later as a reflection of the popularity of the Christian movement. Perhaps you say it's a lie. Well, it's one of the best attested facts in human history. If uh, I witness, if I witness credibility means anything to you, then you cannot doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. How would they all agree to the same story? How were they willing to die for which that they knew to be a lie and out of which they would get no benefit if it were a lie? They had nothing to gain by it. And most of all, of course, those in Christ, raised in Christ, have the witness of the Holy Spirit that he is alive. Perhaps you think it's a hallucination. 
No hallucination is like this. Hallucinations come individually. They do not come to mass crowds of 500 at one time. And they never have positive effects. It's a mental illness. It doesn't change someone to live in a better way. No other successful movement has ever claimed that its founder rose from the dead. And the birth of the church and its extraordinary triumph throughout the Roman Empire, not by force, not by military might, simply by the sword of the Spirit, that is, the proclamation that Jesus is risen, is the ultimate testimony. Don't you want it to be true? It is true. It is. And for those of us who this morning already accept the truth of the resurrection, would you renew your first love? Say, how do I do that? Listen to William Barclay. He said this, Jesus is not a figure in a book, but a living presence. It is not enough to study the story of Jesus like the life of any other great historical figure. You can begin that way. But you must end by meeting him. He's walking among the lampstands. His spiritual presence is real too. Would you start to do the things you do when you have that first love? Spend time with him, get up early, pray. Not just for a few minutes as you've got into the habit of doing, but for an hour or two at a time. Would you read the Bible? Not just to rush through it before you get to work, but as a love letter from God, longing to hear more and more. Would you start to tell others about the love you have for this Jesus? God is not dead, truth is not dead, Jesus is risen, and we are raised up with him. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, we're raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And one day, we will be raised from the dead. I got an email this morning from my family about my godfather, who was for many years a preacher of the gospel and had a very serious disease. An email this morning said that he died yesterday. I thought, what a day to die as a preacher for he is more alive than he ever was. Christ is risen, we are risen, shed upon us heavenly grace, rain and dew and gleams of glory from the brightness of thy face shining in its brilliance, so that we with hearts in heaven here on earth may fruitful be and by angel hands be gathered And be ever, Lord, with thee. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that um, this weekend would be a weekend renewal for, um, for us as a church. Lord, would you have mercy on us? Would you forgive us for falling from our first love if we have, Lord? Would you forgive me for that? 
would you grant us to see the truth of Christ as revealed in your word and as shown to John the Apostle that he is risen, that he is here, his shining brilliance and so fall in love with him again. Lord, I pray for those here today who don't yet know you. Would you, by your Spirit, convince them of the truth of the resurrection so that they may see it as the fact that it is? Would you, by your Spirit, give them meaning and purpose and joy that their life is then hid with Christ in God and they are part of the great communion of the eternal purpose of God for his glory. Would that be the case for many here this morning, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.